This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life Episode 275, Part 2. We've been discussing the introduction to Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. I think we gave a pretty nice overview of the overall method. We were up to section 81. He's going to tell us what our goal is. He wants to investigate and examine the quote-unquote reality of cognition. Or the other way he puts it is, this exposition is viewed as a way of relating science to phenomenal knowledge. It's going to become clear as this unfolds that... The question really amounts to how do we know things in themselves or the absolute, or how do we have metaphysical knowledge if we think we're limited to the phenomena? And of course, his way out is going to be to treat epistemological theories themselves as the phenomena. But he's going to start here by talking about the way that we usually proceed, which is to say, all right, well, we need a criterion. We're going to be judging these different theories. How do we know whether they're good or bad? Let's erect a criterion, which he's going to say we're actually not going to need, and he's going to tell us why we're not going to need it. But the natural approach is to say, well, we need a criterion to tell us what a good theory or a bad theory looks like, and then we can use the criterion to make our judgments. That criterion is usually what we call the essence or the in itself, right? So if we're talking in a typical way about whether a proposition is true or whether something counts as knowledge, we think, okay, does it correspond to what things are in themselves or to something's essence? He's going to tell us why it's not going to work that way for the phenomenology, which is a good thing because that's an impasse. I mean, I don't know that that's the way we normally talk about it because I'm thinking of, on the one hand, like Hume that every bit of alleged knowledge has to break down in some way to perceptual things or mathematical truths or for Descartes, we have to be able to have a clear and distinct perception of it for it to be sort of a foundational bit of knowledge. And in neither of those cases does it sound like, would it be natural to say, well, we're taking that criteria as the in itself or something. But he's saying the standard as such and science likewise, if it were the criterion, is accepted as the essence or the in itself. But here, where science has just begun to come on the scene, neither science nor anything else has yet justified itself as the essence or the in itself. Without something of the sort, it seems that no examination can take place. I think those people would say that the criterion is the foundation, but to say it is the essence or the in itself, I think that's Hegel sort of making an extra leap there that any kind of foundationalism is starting with some sort of alleged understanding of essence or in itself. So that even those guys, if they're not using that terminology, that is in fact what they're doing. I take him to be saying that it's a soft essence. 
in order for this iterative kind of thing to work, it's going to be that whenever you make some claim about the world, you are to first order saying what it is. And I think he's acknowledging that you might not go to the mat on it. You might say, well, you know, actually it might be more complicated than that. But when you make a claim about a concept or pointing out something or talking about it, naming it, talking about how it works, figuring it out, you are implicitly, if not explicitly, talking about what it is. I don't think he's making a big claim here. I think he's trying to say that if we wanted to be deflationary truth people about it, Tarskians, right? We could just say he's saying something as simple as the proposition that snowing is true if and only if it's snowing, something like that. We treat the world outside of us. We treat this alien other typically as the standard to which we appeal. But in this case, we're trying to evaluate different theories of knowledge. And there is no in itself, like we can't say, okay, here's the criterion, here's what science should look like. And I'm going to evaluate these different appearances, these different phases of science according to that ideal. I can't do that, which is going to be a good thing, because as we've already seen, the correspondence theory of truth or trying to talk about the correspondence of phenomena to things in themselves or how they're related is already a disaster. And that's what this whole thing is trying to get us beyond. We got to get beyond that disaster. Thankfully, it's going to turn out that when we evaluate different shapes of knowing, different theories, that just is an internal comparison of consciousness to itself. That's going to be our way out. He's talking about the method that the book is going to take you through, right? So he's saying, I should say something about what my method's going to be. And normally, in an examination, you would say, I'm seeking to discover whether this thing is a liquid or a gas. I have this set of criteria that are the basis for my examination in order to get the outcome that I desire, right? And maybe I should stick to truth and falsity, but he's saying that typically in a methodological work, you have a system, you're applying it to some kind of facts or experiences or something like that with the end goal of trying to make sense of them or determine the theories correct or incorrect, what have you. And what he's saying is this science that I'm talking about doesn't actually have that foundational criterion. I don't know yet what I'm going to use to judge. I don't have the criteria for judging Does those are going to come out and evolve as I go through the process. The next section, he says, if that sounds like a contradiction, right, then let's think about consciousness, which can simultaneously distinguish something from itself and relate itself to it, right? Something basically being in itself and being for itself. And he says, it's not unheard of. That's the model, so to speak, for how we can begin an investigation without necessarily having anything, if you will, in mind as we set out. Yeah, let's get into 82 so we can get at this term being in itself that we just kind of introduced partially in 81 here. This contradiction and its removal will become more definite if we call to mind the abstract determinations of truth and knowledge as they occur in consciousness. Consciousness simultaneously distinguishes itself from something and at the same time relates itself to it, or as it is said, this something exists for consciousness. 
And the determinate aspect of this relating, or the being of something for our consciousness, is knowing. But we distinguish this being for another from being in itself. Whatever is related to knowledge or knowing is also distinguished from it. It is positive is existing outside this relationship. This being in itself is called truth. So I think that's what the essence slash in itself was referring to. So it's genetically related. I felt like, Wes, you were sometimes using the Kantian term things in themselves. Since Hegel rejects that notion, of course, he's not going to use that term, but he still has some equivalent to it, right? What we're actually shooting for in knowledge, i.e. truth, is going to be the essence of whatever it is that we're getting at. He's not describing his position here. He's describing what consciousness does. This is a natural distinction that consciousness makes, that we're going to ultimately transcend. And it is this distinction between the phenomena and the things in themselves. It is the Kantian problem. That's directly what these guys are trying to overcome. So here he's pointing directly to that problem and pointing out how complicated it is, right? Because the idea is that there are things in themselves that we can't know, and then there are the phenomena that we know. And they're related in some hazy causal way. But of course, the idea of the thing in itself and the distinction between the phenomena and things in themselves is itself for us. It's itself something that happens inside consciousness, oddly enough. And that's something he wants us to keep in mind as he progresses. That's going to be very important to the way in which his method is going to get us out of that problem. This whole thing in itself versus phenomena distinction, it's going to collapse for his method because he just is examining the theories themselves as phenomena. And the criteria are not these external in itself stuff. The criteria is something going on inside of consciousness. So we simply do not encounter the typical epistemological problems that we are used to. That's what's so cool and innovative about this. I'd like to read a little bit more, section 83. Now, if we inquire into the truth of knowledge, it seems that we are asking what knowledge is in itself, using that terminology, the thing in itself. So now we're treating knowledge as the object, right? Suddenly knowledge has been put into the object position. And so we can say, hey, are we talking about a knowledge in itself versus the knowledge as we know it? And then he says, yet in this inquiry, knowledge is our object, something that exists for us. And the in itself that would supposedly result from it would rather be the being of knowledge for us. So in other words, when we take knowledge as the object of inquiry in this book, it is no longer in itself. It is for us. He says what we asserted to be its essence would be not so much its truth, but rather just our knowledge of it. But he says the dissociation or the semblance of dissociation and presupposition is overcome by the nature of the object that we're investigating. Consciousness provides its own criterion from within itself, so that the investigation becomes a comparison of consciousness with itself, for the distinction made above falls within it. In other words, you overcome the distinction of the in itself, the object, and the for itself by virtue of the fact that consciousness is both in and for itself when it treats itself like an object, which it can't help but do. Yeah. When we examine these theories, these ways of knowing, these epistemological theories, we treat those as our objects. And then this whole typical distinction between saying, hey, do the phenomena accord with the thing itself? That's not going to be a problem because both of those standards are within consciousness, right? The knowing in itself 
and our knowing of it both happen inside. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.